Part three, chapters five and six of Democracy in America, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Democracy in America, volume two, by Alexis de Tocqueville. Translated by Henry Reeve. Part three, chapter five. How democracy affects the relation of masters and servants. An American who had travelled for a long time in Europe once said to me, The English treat their servants with a stiffness and imperiousness of manner which surprises us, but on the other hand the French sometimes treat their servants with a degree of familiarity or of politeness which we cannot conceive. It looks as if they were afraid to give orders. The posture of the superior and the inferior is ill-maintained. The remark was a just one, and I have often made it myself. I have always considered England as the country in the world where, in our time, the bond of domestic service is drawn most tightly, and France as the country where it is most relaxed. Nowhere have I seen masters stand so high or so low as in these two countries. Between these two extremes the Americans are to be placed. Such is the fact as it appears upon the surface of things. To discover the causes of that fact it is necessary to search the matter thoroughly. No communities have ever yet existed in which social conditions have been so equal, that there were neither rich nor poor, and consequently neither masters nor servants. Democracy does not prevent the existence of these two classes, but it changes their dispositions and modifies their mutual relations. Amongst aristocratic nations servants form a distinct class, not more variously composed than that of masters. A settled order is soon established. In the former, as well as in the latter class, a scale is formed, with numerous distinctions or marked gradations of rank, and generations succeed each other thus without any change of position. These two communities are superposed one above the other, always distinct, but regulated by analogous principles. This aristocratic constitution does not exert a less powerful influence on the notions and manners of servants than on those of masters, and although the effects are different, the same cause may be easily traced. Both classes constitute small communities in the heart of the nation, and certain permanent notions of right and wrong are ultimately engendered amongst them. The different acts of human life are viewed by one particular and unchanging light. In the society of servants, as in that of masters, men exercise a great influence over each other, they acknowledge settled rules, and in the absence of law they are guided by a sort of public opinion, their habits are settled, and their conduct is placed under a certain control. These men, whose destiny is to obey, certainly do not understand fame, virtue, honesty, and honour in the same manner as their masters, but they have a pride, a virtue, and an honesty pertaining to their condition, and they have a notion, if I may use the expression, of a sort of servile honour. Because a class is mean, it must not be supposed that all who belong to it are mean-hearted. To think so would be a great mistake." However lowly it may be, he who is foremost there, and who has no notion of quitting it, occupies an aristocratic position which inspires him with lofty feelings, pride, and self-respect, that fit him for the higher virtues and actions above the common. Among aristocratic nations it was by no means rare to find men of noble and vigorous minds in the service of the great, who felt not the servitude they bore, and who submitted to the will of their masters without any fear of their displeasure." but this was hardly ever the case amongst the inferior ranks of domestic servants. It may be imagined that he who occupies the lowest stage of the order of menials stands very low indeed. The French created a word on purpose to designate the servants of the aristocracy. They called them lackeys. 
This word, lackey, served as the strongest expression, when all others were exhausted, to designate human meanness. Under the old French monarchy, to denote by a single expression a low-spirited, contemptible fellow, it was usual to say that he had the soul of a lackey. The term was enough to convey all that was intended. The permanent inequality of conditions not only gives servants certain peculiar vices and virtues, but it places them in peculiar relation with respect to their masters. Amongst aristocratic nations the poor man is familiarized from his childhood with the notion of being commanded. To whichever side he turns his eyes, the graduated structure of society and the aspect of obedience meet his view. Hence, in those countries, the master readily obtains prompt, complete, respectful, and easy obedience from his servants, because they revere in him not only their master, but the class of masters. He weighs down their will by the whole weight of the aristocracy. He orders their actions. To a certain extent he even directs their thoughts. In aristocracies the master often exercises, even without being aware of it, an amazing sway over the opinions, the habits, and the manners of those who obey him, and his influence extends even further than his authority. In aristocratic communities there are not only hereditary families of servants as well as of masters, but the same families of servants adhere for several generations to the same families of masters, like two parallel lines which neither meet nor separate, and this considerably modifies the mutual relations of these two classes of persons. Thus, although in aristocratic society the master and servant have no natural resemblance, although on the contrary they are placed at an immense distance on the scale of human beings by their fortune, education, and opinions, yet time ultimately binds them together. They are connected by a long series of common reminiscences, and however different they may be, they grow alike, whilst in democracies, where they are naturally almost alike, they always remain strangers to each other. Amongst an aristocratic people the master gets to look upon his servants as an inferior and secondary part of himself, and he often takes an interest in their lot by a last stretch of egotism. Servants, on their part, are not adverse to regard themselves in the same light, and they sometimes identify themselves with the person of the master, so that they become an appendage to him in their own eyes as well as in his. In aristocracies a servant fills a subordinate position which he cannot get out of. Above him is another man, holding a superior rank, which he cannot lose. On the one side are obscurity, poverty, obedience for life, on the other, and also for life, fame, wealth, and command. The two conditions are always distinct and always in propinquity. The tie that connects them is as lasting as they are themselves. In this predicament the servant ultimately detaches his notion of interest from his own person. He deserts himself, as it were, or rather he transports himself into the character of the master, and thus assumes an imaginary personality. He complacently invests himself with the wealth of those who command him. He shares their fame, exalts himself by their rank, and feeds his mind with borrowed greatness, to which he attaches more importance than those who fully and really possess it. There is something touching, and at the same time ridiculous, in this strange confusion of two different states of being. The passions of masters, when they pass into souls of menials, assume the natural dimensions of the place they occupy. They are contracted and lowered. What was pride in the former becomes puerile vanity and paltry ostentation in the latter. The servants of a great man are commonly most punctilious as to the marks of respect due to him, and they attach more importance to his slightest privileges than he does himself. In France a few of these old servants of the aristocracy are still to be met with here and there. They have survived their race, which will soon disappear with them altogether. 
In the United States I never saw any one at all like them. The Americans are not only unacquainted with the kind of man, but it is hardly possible to make them understand that such ever existed. It is scarcely less difficult for them to conceive it than for us to form a correct notion of what a slave was amongst the Romans, or a serf in the Middle Ages. All these men were in fact, though in different degrees, results of the same cause. They are all retiring from our sight, and disappearing in the obscurity of the past, together with the social condition to which they owed their origin. Equality of conditions turns servants and masters into new beings, and places them in new relative positions. When social conditions are nearly equal, men are constantly changing their situations in life. There is still a class of menials and a class of masters, but these classes are not always composed of the same individuals, still less of the same families, and those who command are not more secure of perpetuity than those who obey. As servants do not form a separate people, they have no habits, prejudices, or manners peculiar to themselves. They are not remarkable for any particular turn of mind or moods of feeling. They know no vices or virtues of their condition, but they partake of the education, the opinions, the feelings, the virtues, and the vices of their contemporaries, and they are honest men or scoundrels in the same way as their masters are. The condition of servants are not less equal than those of masters. As no marked ranks or fixed subordination are to be found amongst them, they will not display either the meanness or the greatness which characterizes the aristocracy of menials as well as all other aristocracies. I never saw a man in the United States who reminded me of that class of confidential servants of which we still retain a reminiscence in Europe. Neither did I ever meet with such a thing as a lackey. All traces of the one and of the other have disappeared. In democracies servants are not only equal amongst themselves, but it may be said that they are in some sort the equals of their masters. This requires explanation in order to be rightly understood. At any moment a servant may become a master, and he aspires to rise to that condition. The servant is therefore not a different man from the master. Why, then, has the former a right to command, and what compels the latter to obey? The free and temporary consent of both their wills. Neither of them is by nature inferior to the other. They only become so for a time by covenant. Within the terms of this covenant, the one is a servant, the other a master. Beyond it they are two citizens of the commonwealth, two men. I beg the reader particularly to observe that this is not only the notion which servants themselves entertain of their own condition. Domestic service is looked upon by masters in the same light, and the precise limits of authority and obedience are as clearly settled in the mind of the one as in that of the other. When the greater part of the community have long attained a condition nearly alike, and when equality is an old and acknowledged fact, the public mind, which is never affected by exceptions, assigns certain general limits to the value of man, above or below which no man can long remain placed. It is in vain that wealth and poverty, authority and obedience, accidentally interpose great distances between two men. Public opinion, founded upon the usual order of things, draws them to a common level, and creates a species of imaginary equality between them, in spite of the real inequality of their conditions. This all-powerful opinion penetrates at length even into the hearts of those whose interest might arm them to resist it. It affects their judgment whilst it subdues their will. In their inmost convictions the master and the servant no longer perceive any deep-seated difference between them. They neither hope nor fear to meet with any such at any time. They are therefore neither subject to disdain nor anger, and they discern in each other neither humility nor pride. 
the master holds the contract of service to be the only source of his power, and the servant regards it as the only cause of his obedience. They do not quarrel about their reciprocal situation, but each knows his own and keeps it. In the French army, the common soldier is taken from nearly the same classes as the officer, and may hold the same commissions. Out of the ranks he considers himself entirely equal to his military superiors, and in point of fact he is so. But when under arms he does not hesitate to obey, and his obedience is not the less prompt, precise, and ready, for being voluntary and defined. This example may give a notion of what takes place between masters and servants in democratic communities. It would be preposterous to suppose that those warm and deep-seated affections, which are sometimes kindled in the domestic service of the aristocracy, will ever spring up between these two men, or that they will exhibit strong instances of self-sacrifice. In aristocracies masters and servants live apart, and frequently their only intercourse is through a third person, yet they commonly stand firmly by one another. In democratic countries the master and the servant are close together. They are in daily personal contact, but their minds do not intermingle. They have common occupations, but hardly ever common interests. Among such a people the servant always considers himself as a sojourner in the dwelling of his masters. He knew nothing of their forefathers, he will see nothing of their descendants, he has nothing lasting to expect from their hand. Why, then, should he confound his life with theirs, and whence should so strange a surrender himself proceed? The reciprocal question of the two men is changed. Their mutual relations must be so, too. I would fain illustrate all these reflections by the example of the Americans, but for this purpose the distinction of persons and places must be accurately traced. In the south of the Union slavery exists. All that I have just said is consequently inapplicable there. In the North, the majority of servants are either freedmen or the children of freedmen. These persons occupy a contested position in the public estimation. By the laws they are brought up to the level of their masters, by the manners of the country they are obstinately detruded from it. They do not themselves clearly know their proper place, and they are almost always either insolent or craven. But in the northern states, especially in New England, there are a certain number of whites, who agree for wages to yield a temporary obedience to the will of their fellow-citizens. I have heard that these servants commonly perform the duties of their situation with punctuality and intelligence, and that without thinking themselves naturally inferior to the person who orders them, they submit without reluctance to obey him. They appear to me to carry into service some of these manly habits which independence and equality engender. Having once selected a hard way of life, they do not seek to escape from it by indirect means, and they have sufficient respect for themselves not to refuse to their master that obedience which they have freely promised. On their part, masters require nothing of their servants but the faithful and rigorous performance of the covenant. They do not ask for marks of respect. They do not claim their love or devoted attachment. It is enough that, as servants, they are exact and honest." It would not then be true to assert that, in democratic society, the relation of servants and masters is disorganized. It is organized on another footing. The rule is different, but there is a rule. It is not my purpose to inquire whether the new state of things which I have just described is inferior to that which preceded it, or simply different. Enough for me that it is fixed and determined, for what is most important to meet with among men is not any given ordering, but order. But what I shall say of these sad and troubled times, at which equality is established in the midst of the tumult of revolution, 
when democracy, after having been introduced into the state of society, still struggles with difficulty against the prejudices and manners of the country. The laws, and particularly public opinion, already declare that no natural or permanent inferiority exists between the servant and the master. But this new belief has not yet reached the innermost convictions of the latter, or rather his heart rejects it. In the secret persuasion of his mind, the master thinks that he belongs to a peculiar and superior race. He dares not say so, but he shudders whilst he allows himself to be dragged to the same level. His authority over his servants becomes timid and at the same time harsh. He has already ceased to entertain for them the feelings of patronizing kindness which long uncontested power always engenders, and he is surprised that, being changed himself, his servant changes also. He wants his attendants to form regular and permanent habits, in condition of domestic service, which is only temporary. He requires that they should appear contented with and proud of a servile condition, which they will one day shake off, that they should sacrifice themselves to a man who can neither protect nor ruin them, and, in short, that they should contract an indissoluble engagement to a being like themselves, and one who will last no longer than they will. Among aristocratic nations it often happens that the condition of domestic service does not degrade the character of those who enter upon it, because they neither know nor imagine any other, and the amazing inequality which is manifest between them and their masters appears to be the necessary and unavoidable consequence of some hidden law of providence. In democracies the condition of domestic service does not degrade the character of those who enter upon it, because it is freely chosen, and adopted for a time only because it is not stigmatized by public opinion, and creates no permanent inequality between the servant and the master. But whilst the transition from one social condition to another is going on, there is almost always a time when men's minds fluctuate between the aristocratic notions of subjection and the democratic notion of obedience. Obedience then loses its moral importance in the eyes of him who obeys. He no longer considers it as a species of divine obligation, and he does not yet view it under its purely human aspect. It has to him no character of sanctity or of justice, and he submits to it as to a degrading but profitable condition. At that moment a confused and imperfect phantom of equality haunts the minds of servants. They do not at once perceive whether the equality to which they are entitled is to be found within or without the pale of domestic service, and they rebel in their hearts against a subordination to which they have subjected themselves, and from which they derive actual profit. They consent to serve, and they blush to obey. They like the advantages of service, but not the master, or rather they are not sure that they ought not themselves to be masters, and they are inclined to consider him who orders them as an unjust usurper of their own rights. Then it is that the dwelling of every citizen offers a spectacle somewhat analogous to the gloomy aspect of political society. A secret and intestine warfare is going on there between powers, ever rivals and suspicious of one another. The master is ill-natured and weak, the servant ill-natured and intractable, the one constantly attempts to evade by unfair restrictions his obligation to protect and remunerate, the other his obligation to obey. The reins of domestic government dangle between them, to be snatched at by one or the other. The lines which divide authority from oppression, liberty from license, and right from might, are to their eyes so jumbled together and confused, that no one knows exactly what he is, or what he may be, or what he ought to be. Such a condition is not democracy, but revolution. CHAPTER six, THAT DEMOCRATIC INSTITUTIONS AND MANNERS TEND TO RAISE RENTS AND SHORTEN THE TERMS OF LEASES. What has been said of servants and masters is applicable, to a certain extent, to landowners and farming tenants. 
but this subject deserves to be considered by itself. In America there are, properly speaking, no tenant-farmers. Every man owns the ground he tills. It must be admitted that democratic laws tend greatly to increase the number of landowners, and to diminish that of farming tenants. Yet what takes place in the United States is much less attributable to the institutions of the country than to the country itself. In America land is cheap, and any one may easily become a landowner. Its returns are small, and its produce cannot well be divided between a landowner and a farmer. America, therefore, stands alone in this as well as in many other respects, and it would be a mistake to take it as an example. I believe that in democratic as well as in aristocratic countries there will be landowners and tenants, but the connection existing between them will be of a different kind. In aristocracies the hire of a farm is paid to the landlord, not only in rent, but in respect, regard, and duty. In democracies the whole is paid in cash. When estates are divided and passed from hand to hand, and the permanent connection which existed between families and the soil is dissolved, the landowner and the tenant are only casually brought into contact. They meet for a moment to settle the conditions of the agreement, and then lose sight of each other. They are two strangers brought together by a common interest, and who keenly talk over a manner of business, the sole object of which is to make money. In proportion as property is subdivided and wealth distributed over the country, the community is filled with people whose former opulence is declining, and with others whose fortunes are of recent growth, and whose wants increase more rapidly than their resources. For all such persons the smallest pecuniary profit is a matter of importance, and none of them feel disposed to waive any of their claims, or to lose any portion of their income. As ranks are intermingled, and as very large as well as very scanty fortunes become more rare, every day brings the social condition of the landowner nearer to that of the farmer. The one has not naturally any uncontested superiority over the other, between two men who are equal, and not at ease in their circumstances, the contract of hire is exclusively an affair of money. A man whose estate extends over a whole district, and who owns a hundred farms, is well aware of the importance of gaining, at the same time, the affections of some thousands of men. This object appears to call for his exertions, and, to attain it, he will readily make considerable sacrifices. But he who owns a hundred acres is insensible to similar considerations, and he cares but little to win the private regard of his tenant. An aristocracy does not expire like a man in a single day. The aristocratic principle is slowly undermined in men's opinions, before it is attacked in their laws. Long before open war is declared against it, the tie which had hitherto united the higher classes to the lower may be seen to be gradually relaxed. Indifference and contempt are betrayed by one class, jealousy and hatred by the others. The intercourse between rich and poor becomes less frequent and less kind, and rents are raised. This is not the consequence of a democratic revolution, but its certain harbinger, for an aristocracy which has lost the affections of the people, once and forever, is like a tree dead at the root, which is the more easily torn up by winds the higher its branches have spread. In the course of the last fifty years the rents of farms have amazingly increased, not only in France, but throughout the greater part of Europe. The remarkable improvements which have taken place in agriculture and manufactures within the same period do not suffice, in my opinion, to explain this fact. Recourse must be had to another cause more powerful and more concealed. I believe that cause is to be found in the democratic institutions which several European nations have adopted, and in the democratic passions which more or less agitate all the rest. 
I have frequently heard great English landowners congratulate themselves that, at the present day, they derive a much larger income from their estates than their fathers did. They had perhaps good reasons to be glad, but most assured they know not what they are glad of. They think they are making a clear gain, when it is in reality only an exchange. Their influence is what they are parting with for cash, and what they gain in money will ere long be lost in power. There is yet another sign by which it is easy to know that a great democratic revolution is going on or approaching. In the Middle Ages almost all lands were leased for lives, or for very long terms. The domestic economy of that period shows that leases for ninety-nine years were more frequent than leases for twelve years are now. Men then believed that families were immortal, men's conditions seemed settled for ever, and the whole of society appeared to be so fixed that it was not supposed that anything would ever be stirred or shaken in its structure. In ages of equality the human mind takes a different bent. The prevailing notion is that nothing abides, and man is haunted by the thought of mutability. Under this impression the landowner and the tenant himself are instinctively averse to protracted terms of obligation. They are afraid of being tied up to-morrow by the contract which benefits them to-day. They have vague anticipations of some sudden and unforeseen change in their conditions, they mistrust themselves, they fear lest their taste should change, and lest they should lament that they cannot rid themselves of what they coveted. Nor are such fears unfounded, for in democratic ages that which is most fluctuating amidst the fluctuation of all around is the heart of man. End of Part 3, Chapters 5 and 6